All right. Morning, everybody. Handout hymn, Christ the Fair Glory of the Angels. It's also in the bulletin for today. It's the hymn of the day. You can sing it from either. We'll do stanzas one and five. Christ the fair glory of the holy angels, maker of all men, ruler of all nations, grant of thy mercy unto us thy servants, steps up to heaven. Father Almighty, Son and Holy Spirit, God ever-blessed, be thou our preserver, thine is the glory which the angels worship, veiling their faces. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the service of angels and men in a wonderful order. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment may they also help and defend us here on earth. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week, Hebrews 4.16, probably very familiar to you. Let's speak this together. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay. Let us, you would probably categorize that as what? Christian. Pardon me? Oh, no, I mean, sorry, the statement. If I said, let us eat, how would you take that? Is it a command? No. It's an invitation. Now, there's another way There's another way that you can take that too, let us. Firstly, it's invitation, hey, let us eat. But there's another way, and that is, uh, the, let us be better Christians. What would that be? Not so much invitation, but... A suggestion? <laughs> a, little more, a little more than a suggestion. Close to a command, but not a command. Yes, yes, a request, a request. 
the word that I'm looking for, request is close enough, but the word I'm looking for is exhortation. <laughs> All right, thank you for your sarcasm. It's been noted. <laughs> exhortation, whoops. Exhortation and invitation, and this, it doesn't have to be just one or the other, it can be both. Let us therefore, now, what's important about there being a therefore here? Exactly, something must have come before. Anytime you hear thus, or therefore, or, uh, you know, then, let us, it's talking in, within the context of something that's already happened. So, within the context of Hebrews chapter 4, what is it that we've already been talking about? Starting, it starts verse 12. It's this discussion of Jesus as the high priest. What is important about Jesus being your high priest? Well, he ain't like any other priest because he passed through the heavens, is what the author to the Hebrews writes. Christ passed through the heavens to you and he has taken on your flesh and he is your high priest and intercessor and because he has taken on your flesh, he knows exactly what you suffer. He experiences what you have experienced. Therefore, and that's the context of this. So, uh, because Christ is now personal to you, because he is with you, because he suffers with you, he experiences with you, he knows you, all of this, because of these realities then, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, I want to I say two really interesting things about this text, because I was curious, so I, I looked this up in the Vulgate, which is the Latin, and in the Greek New Testament. The Greek isn't boldly. The Greek is literally license of tongue. which I think is really interesting. Don't come just boldly, like you're swaggering on up there. Yeah, I'm supposed to be here, I'm gonna be bold. But you have a license of tongue, which means a different kind of boldness. It's a boldness in what you're able to say, which is what we confess in the explanation of the uh, Lord's Prayer. The introduction of the Lord's Prayer, in fact. Our Father who art in heaven, what does this mean? Huh? Well, with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our father and we are his, his children so that we would ask him as dear children ask their dear father, which is to say, with a license of speech. You don't get to talk to daddy, uh, you don't get to talk to someone else's daddy the same way you talk to your daddy. You don't get to ask for the same kinds of things or with the same liberty or license of another person's father that you do of your own. So you have a license of speech. Now the Latin, on the other hand, has the word faith. Now isn't that interesting? Come with faith to the throne of grace, which should tell you if you're looking at this, 
Remember that the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin, they all work together and they help you understand one another. So if you're really having trouble with one of the languages, because I know that you do, uh, this is more of a me problem. If you're having trouble with one of the languages uh, and you don't quite understand what it's getting at, look at another language and it serves as a commentary uh, in large degree. So, what does it mean if we're going to combine the idea of license of tongue and faith, but then translate it in the English as boldly? What does that tell you about what it is to be a Christian? Specifically, what does it tell you about faith? Do not be hesitant. What? Do not be hesitant. Okay, faith is not hesitant. That's why I tell you to say your amens boldly, because faith is not hesitant. With confidence, faith is a confident thing. Luther says, faith is the living, daring confidence in the word of God, so sure of it that it would stake its life on it a thousand times. That you are, a faith is something that is receptive because it's receiving. Why are you coming boldly to the throne of grace? That we may obtain and find grace, obtain mercy and find grace. But also, that with your faith comes a liberty in how you speak, that you have a privilege of being able to do this, approach the throne of grace and obtain mercy, uh, because you are a child, because Christ is your high priest, he's joined himself to you and joined you to him so that he can intercede for you before the heavenly throne, so that you don't have to go to the priest excuse me, and have the priest walk into the Holy of Holies and do all of that for you, now you can just go right to God and say, ah, finally, my Father, I'm with you now. I don't have to go through a thousand steps to, to, to get to the point of mediation with you. Come, where are we going? The throne of grace. What is the throne of grace? This is the question. Christ on the cross? Oh, good boy. <laughs> <laughs> the throne of grace is the crucified Christ. Where does Christ, the king, take on his throne and his crown? Upon the cross. From where does he rule? Upon the cross. The, uh, and from where does he dispense his grace? From the cross. So, this ties in with the third commandment, which we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, where do you go if you want to obtain mercy? To the cross. To the cross. Uh, but we don't all have Jerusalem within easy access of us. And, you know, the pieces of the cross, whatever you say about those relics, whether they're legitimate or not. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just commenting on that people say there are pieces of the cross. Now, the pieces of the cross are scattered all over the world, but we don't have a piece of the cross here, so how do you go to the cross? Is it just figurative and not literal? Well, to the extent that you just explained it there. Yes. So you're not going to the literal piece of the cross. But you're going where? Yes. You know, there's a reason that the altar is still in the church and that we still call it an altar because an altar is the place of sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, you don't need an altar. What is the cross? 
It's the altar. The cross is the altar of God. So you come to the throne of grace. You come to the altar. Every time you come here to this church and you approach the altar, you are returning to the foot of the cross where the mercies of God are flowing forth. Why? Why do you go there? Well, so that you can find mercy, which we just talked about, and find grace. Why do you need mercy and grace? To help in time of need. When is your time of need? <laughs> yeah, it's always. Guess what? You live in a perpetual time of need. Which is all the more reason then for you to ensure that the Sabbath day is actually kept because you need that Sabbath day. So let's, okay, let's speak this again and then we'll hit the catechism. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, what is the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Remember the Sabbath. Remember when we, <laughs> when recall when we talked about Bible language and I told you that the word remember in the Bible doesn't mean what it means when we use it in our common speech. What does it mean when the Bible uses the term remember? Okay, yes, that's, that's one aspect of it, that's a facet. Pardon me? Uh, this is all right in terms of the Sabbath day, but in terms of the actual word remember, think about it like this. The Lord says, I have remembered my promise to you, um, to the children of Israel in Egypt, but they've been slaves for how many years? For hundred years. Was it that the Lord just said, yeah, 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 I promised to deliver you, and then he laid down for a quick nap and woke up and said, oh boy, I overslept 400 years. Well, don't worry, I, I remembered now. Because that's how we use it. I remembered, which means at one time I didn't, but now I've remembered. Oh, rats, I remembered I have something to do. But God doesn't use it that way, or like this, do this unto the remembrance of me. When God remembers his promise, remembrance is the fulfillment of something, the enacting of something, the reality of something. So when you are remembering the Sabbath day, it's not that you're forgetting it and you go, oh, wait, today's the Sabbath? Oh, I just remembered. That's not the point of the commandment because it's implied that you're not going to forget the Sabbath. The remembrance is make it happen, guy. Make, make, this, make sure that this Sabbath happens. Don't, don't stay away from it. Go to it. Participate in it. Become yourself a part of the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And what is the fulfillment of the Sabbath? The word and the sacrament that are distributed. Really, you coming to Jesus and Jesus touching you. That's the, that's the fulfillment of the Sabbath, which then makes the New Testament make so much more sense when you look at Jesus healing on the Sabbath and the people getting mad and he says, you have no idea what you're talking about. This is what the Sabbath is all about. So, what does it mean then that we remember the Sabbath day? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise, which is to hate or to hold in low regard. His, uh, the, or also, by the way, 
to avoid. Uh, don't despise preaching and his word. And in the Latin of the, this, is, this comes from the German small catechism, but the Latin catechism also has the phrase, and the divinely inspired sermons, which tells you that when you come to church, not even the sermon is something that the pastor himself is doing, but that everything that happens there in the sanctuary, within the liturgy, as a part of the divine service, is something that the Lord himself is doing for you. Because the Sabbath is not about you, it's about the Lord and him serving you. And he wants you to come to his house so he can serve you. But instead, you are to hold it sacred, hold it in high regard and treat it as such, and gladly hear and learn it. But hear and learn it, this is the last point, this is a passive thing. It's, again, something that's done to you. Because how do you learn it? I mean, look at, look at the small catechism. How do you learn it? Gladly hear and learn it. You learn it by hearing, just like what St. Paul says. How are they to know Christ without preaching? How are they to know about him of whom they have not heard? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay? All of this is tied into the idea of the Sabbath and the remembrance of it, uh, the, the living out of it. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, kids... You can go downstairs for Sunday school. We're on a slightly tighter schedule today because the choir is singing and the kids are singing. So we've got to be sort of, I have to be a little more responsible today. Mm -hmm. Say that again. I said, I have to be a little more responsible today. It's about time somebody held me accountable. <laughs> um, I need to mark this so I don't lose it. Okay. Did you remember what I told you we were going to talk about today? Do you recall? And I'm not asking because I forgot. I'm asking because I want to make sure that if you don't remember, I give you the foundation again. We're still on the idea of purgatory. And the reason that we're talking about purgatory is in contrast to what, we, what would be called the intermediate state, which is a better way of talking about what happens when you die than, than the place of purgatory as a location and as a duration of arbitrary time that is determined by how not good enough you are to be let into the heavenly kingdom. Um, it's like, how long does your shower have to be after working outside? I don't know. It depends on how dirty you are. Well, the Lord's the one that says, well, it looks like you're pretty dirty, so 10 million years in purgatory. But if your relatives are really good and pray for you, they can take some of that time off. Okay, that was, that was an uncharitable explanation of it, but you get the point. Okay. And I, so, I told you what about Lutherans and purgatory? Do we believe in purgatory, yes or no? Yes. yes. <laughs> That's the stuff I love. Teaching the catechumenate, I've done this before, where you just kind of throw it out there. 
just nonchalantly, yeah, yeah, and of course, you know, we believe in purgatory and blah, 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 and then you just keep moving and everybody sits there like this. I just like to mess with people. We do. We do believe in purgatory, but not purgatory as such, okay? So today what I want for us to do is look at what it is we actually do believe about purgatory as it is understood by us to be the purgation, not a geographical location and not a period of time. Because if you understand it that way, in the way that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters do, and some of our Anglican brothers and sisters do, and this is not a, a slam on them, it, it's, if you affirm that, then the biggest problem that you run into is that the atonement does not satisfy your punishment and your guilt. It only takes away your punishment because your guilt is then clinging to you and you need to be cleansed of your guilt in a separate cleansing or a cleansing that's in some way removed from the blood of Christ. And again, like I said last week, in, to be as charitable as is possible, the argument would be that purgatory is a part of the cleansing of the blood of Christ. It just takes place after death instead of while you are alive. That you can't have purgatory without the atonement of Christ because the atonement of Christ is the thing that's going to make you better. And we say, yeah, we agree with that, but we say that the atonement of Christ is something that takes care of the guilt and the punishment while you are here. Because to say then that there's still something left that happens after for an extended duration of time dealing with your guilt and your punishment also then, in a sense, logically devalues what the sacraments are doing to you in this life. Because the sacraments are doing the thing to you that the, that particular idea of purgatory says is doing to you, cleansing you, transforming you, making you better, so that you can be acceptable on the day of the Lord. Yeah, but that's what, that's what the body and blood of Christ is doing to you right now. If Jesus gives you a blood transfusion, and then when he comes to look at you, you still don't look good, where does the fault lie? In the transfusion because it hasn't done what it's supposed to do. So these are some of our objections to that, but we don't object to the idea of a purgation because the idea of a purgation itself is actually biblical and is affirmed, by the way, in the Lutheran Confessions, which I will talk about in just a minute. So the order of operations for today, we're gonna to look at the biblical examples and then we're gonna look at the Confessions. There's one passage in particular in the large catechism on the creed, uh, on the third article of the creed, um, that, that we'll look at here. But the first place to look is the most obvious, and that is 1 Corinthians 3. 
Because 1 Corinthians 3 is the big, 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 big purgatory passage. Now, we're not going to look at the apocryphal texts. There are a couple apocryphal texts that are also used. I think in 2 Maccabees is one of the texts when um, Mattathias makes a sacrifice for the dead or says prayers for the dead. And there's the implication that there's some kind of purgatory. Now, we wouldn't... That, that's, by the way, where the idea of a mass for the dead comes from. That a mass for the dead, the sacrifice of the mass for mass, M-A-S-S, -S, yeah. So we wouldn't do that if somebody died um, during the Reformation time. What you would do is, um, grandma died, and you know that she's going to purgatory, so what can you do for her? Well, you can put together some money, and you can pay the priest to say a private mass for your grandmother so that because of the work that the priest did, God would have mercy on your grandmother and shave some time off of her sentence. And the amount of time that is shaved off and the, the quality of the work that earns the time off performed by the priest, is determined by the amount of money. A hundred bucks will get her, you know, get her a, a year or two, maybe. Thousand dollars, maybe ten. Million dollars, hundred years off purgatory. So that's one of the abuses of the church that was born, that the Reformation was against. So you'll see that if you read through the Book of Concord, that the confessors are very much against the idea of what is called a private mass. Some Lutherans get their undies in a bundle when a pastor has communion with himself and one or two people. Why? Because it's a private mass. <laughs> and we're laughing, but I actually know guys. I went to school with guys that thought that. And my response was always, then what are you doing when you're going and giving communion to a shut-in? Well, that's just an extension of the Sunday service, so they're still included in the Sunday service. But if you have a special service during the week and there's two people that show up, well, that's a private mass. I said, but Jesus says, where one or two are gathered, there I am. And historically, a private mass doesn't mean one where, you know, the partition is pulled and, and there's one or two people there. Private mass refers to the payment of the priest to have a mass that is said specifically for one individual in order that that one individual might have sentenced you know, years of the sentence of purgatory removed. That's a private mass because it is said privately for a private individual. But any service that we do is inherently not private. It is inherently public because the word of God is being proclaimed to somebody else and the body and the blood are being administered to somebody else, which is not private. That's public. Now, 1 Corinthians 3. 
we'll start, uh, start at verse 9 here. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, yes, sir. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. That would be an issue, wouldn't it? 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. Yeah, this is, so this is the passage, this, this uh, passage here that is like probably one of the biggest ones to talk about purgatory. Why? Because purgatory is a cleansing fire. Things are burned off of you. The example I gave last, uh, last week was a hot shower. You, know, you want to take a hot shower. That's why people aren't afraid of purgatory. Uh, good Roman Catholics actually look forward to purgatory. And it, it, according to what they believe about it or should believe about it, they should look forward to it because it's going to burn a little bit, but it's getting you clean. Um, it's like taking the steel wool to your hands after working or whatever, you know, get, getting underneath your fingernails, making sure however you're scrubbing your nails, you know, when you go, when you go and you just, you can't do it with your bare hands, so you take something that gets in under your nails and, and you take the pumice stone and you really get yourself all clean. It's not the most comfortable feeling in the world, but your hands do come out looking much better afterward, which mother appreciates when you come to the dinner table. So, that's sort of the idea of it, but there's, there's this idea of firstly the foundation, and the foundation has to be what? What does the foundation have to be? Christ. Christ has to be the foundation. Now, you know this because there, there's a lot of talk about foundations in Scripture. Um, take, for example, a certain parable of Two builders. One builder builds his house where? On the rock and sand. Mm-hmm. And of course the rains came tumbling down. Okay. One person builds on the rock. He builds a foundation that is solid for his house. The other one builds on a, uh, on a not solid foundation. And when the... When the water comes, the foundation, that substrate of sand, is washed away, but because the house is built on it, the house goes where the foundation goes. It just reminds me of um, Monty Python and the, uh, and the Holy Grail. 
when there's the guy who built his castle in the swamp and he says, I built this castle here and then it sank into the swamp. And then I built another one here and that one sank into the swamp. And then I built a third one here and that one sank into the swamp. And finally I built this one here and this one sank a little bit, but it's still here. Like, how many castles did you have to build before they finally stopped sinking? This is your fourth castle and it's finally not sinking because it's sitting on top of all the other ones that you built there that sank down. Now, that's a foolish foundation because what's going to happen to your building when you build it on the swamp? It's going to sink because you don't have something solid underneath. The Christian is exactly like that. You are God's buildings. That's also important, by the way, because... In uh, King uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles, I think, there's the dedication of Solomon's temple. And what does the Lord say about the temple? Do you remember? He says, put my name upon the temple because the building that bears my name is the building that I will dwell in. How do you know that I will be here with you in your temple? Because my name is there. And you know that wherever my name is, I am. So why is it then a nifty thing for you that you are the Lord's building? Or to use, this is, this is still the language of St. Paul here in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you see this? That you are a building like the old temple. This is why we don't need the temple. You know, the Jews are still waiting for Jesus Christ to come, or excuse me, not Jesus Christ, for the Christ to come. And uh, they've got the riches in the temple. They, they, they say, you know, he's going to come to the temple. This is the temple. He's going to make the temple great again. And, uh, and then they get angry when he says, I'm going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And there is, of course, yeah, okay, he's talking about his body, but there is also the sense that I'm actually going to destroy this temple that you think is so holy. Why? Because this isn't the place where God lives anymore. Now, you are the place where God lives. One, because he became incarnate and took on your very flesh, so he lives in your humanity, but he also lives in your individual personal flesh by virtue of Which sacrament? The blood. The blood. No. Rewind a little bit. How do you get there? Baptism. It's baptism. When is the name of God put on you? At baptism. Baptism is the dedication of the temple. That's why, by the way, uh, I... People that don't believe in infant baptism and they bring their children and they say, well, we're going to have our children dedicated. And they say, okay, I mean, that's nice, I guess. Baptism, we think baptism does something, which is why we rush to make sure that everybody gets it because we think that everybody needs it. That is the thing that baptism is going to do. But you also have the idea of how are you going to be dedicated without the name and working of the Lord through the Spirit in the water? How is, how, how is the true dedication taking place? Because baptism is a dedication. Baptism is the Old Testament dedication where the name is put upon the temple. Why? So that the Lord will live there. 
Why do you think a baptism begins with an exorcism? Because you're a building. Whether you like it or not, something's going to live in you. And what the church says is, we want something good to live in you. Because if something good is living in you, that's better for you. It's better for everyone around you. It's better for your salvation. Something bad that lives in you is detrimental to you. So you are this building of the Lord. Which means you need a foundation. And your foundation must be Christ. Because even you as a building have to have something to stand on. So think of, them, think of that great hymn, Bum, bum, bum. Oh, yeah, good. That's even better. The church's one foundation is? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah, and then the hymn I was singing, bum, 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 Built on the? Oh, that's another good one. We have three good ones. Built on the rock, the church shall stand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And the church is one foundation. Okay, look at that. You've got three hymns that are all saying exactly the same thing. So we should probably consolidate and only have one, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. They're all good hymns, and that should emphasize to you part of the purpose of Lutheran hymnody, which is that it teaches. And how do you teach without repetition? Well, you don't. You talk. If, you don't have, if, if, you, if you're teaching without repetition, you're not teaching, you're just talking. And then nobody cares. <laughs> so... Uh, that's my justification for being a broken record at any rate. So you've got this foundation. Now what happens with the foundation? You don't just put, lay a foundation and then say, well, house looks good. I see the outline. You have to build on it. You have to continue to build. Now the thing is, for Christians, the rest of your life is a continued building upon that foundation. Your, you building of the Lord are not going to be completed until the day that Jesus comes and actually completes you. But when he comes, he doesn't want to see a bare foundation. Because if he does, what he's going to say is, I, what have you been doing? You know, we got a schedule to keep, friend. We've got to get this building done. I get, I, you know, the foundation's been poured for you. What, you're supposed to be building on that foundation because when I come, I'm going you know, to finish everything. I'm the capstone. I can't, you can't lay the capstone until everything else is done. Come on. So you've got to build on that foundation. Now, there's, you can build on it in lots of different ways. This is what St. Paul's talking about. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. It's like the... Uh, this is so terrible. The first thing that I think of is the three little pigs. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Because then I feel justified. Okay. So there are, some, there are some kinds of materials that are better than others. And when the storm comes, you want to have the stuff that's good and solid. Because the storm is one of fire. Now, who's the one that wields the fire? This is Bible trivia. It's in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist and the Pharisees and, hey, are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. Someone else is the Christ. I baptize with water, but he baptizes with fire. Well, with what comes before fire? The Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Now you can say maybe that's a reference to Pentecost. I think it's less a reference to Pentecost specifically and more of a reference to the reality that you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And then there is a purgation that takes place with fire. And who's the one that comes with the fire? Jesus comes. This is part of what it means when we confess that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Because it's not like, it's not like you're going to be the kid who's getting a spanking and then shows up and says, you know, why are you getting spanked? Well, because I hit my sister and I lied about it and I played ball in the house when I wasn't supposed to. You know, like, Jesus is staring down at you. All right, tell me what you did. Well, I did this. I did that. And this. And everybody's watching going, oh. And Jesus says, now you all knock it off because you're all next. You know, it, it's, not, it's not like that. There is this cleansing fire, okay? And the bad is burned away. The bad is burned away. And what you are left with is who you are. What's often the depiction of hell? Fire. Fire. Mm -hmm. huh. wonder if that's a coincidence. I wonder if that's a coincidence. And not only just fire, but the, this is, I love the Greek, the asbestos fire, the hot, burning, unquenchable fire. That is what's often translated as hell fire, is asbestos fire. You burn, you don't burn. Yeah. You burn and you don't burn. So you're like the burning, oh, this is a good example. I just thought of this. You're like the burning bush. You're burned, but then you're not consumed. You're raised from the dead and you're covered by Christ's atonement, but you refused Christ's atonement. So whether or not you like it, his blood still covers you, but you've refused his salvation, which means all of you is being consumed by the fire of God, but you're not going anywhere. You, you almost plead, please just let me die, because that would be better than what I have to suffer here. The wrath of God that is consuming sin. See, again, it's this idea of consuming sin. So, where is your sin? Well, Christ has atoned for it, right? I mean, pastor pronounces the forgiveness of sins to you, right? According to, this, according to the command of Christ and the authority of Christ. So, where's your sin? But where is it? Um, that's what it is, but where is it? In Adam. Yes, yes. You're, I, I don't know if you realize how great that answer is. <laughs> your, your original sin is in Adam, which means what about you? Yes, you're part of Adam. Why is it that you still suffer for Adam's sins? Because, newsflash, when Adam sinned, you sinned because you were in Adam. All of Adam's progeny were still in him, which means when he sinned, you sinned. That's, what, that's why the Lord says, the, you know, holding the sins against them, or the sins of their fathers against them. You didn't commit the sin, like in your body, but you were in your father when your father committed the sin, and therefore you are a part of your father's sin. 
That's what original sin is. And where does it reside? Where does your original sin, which is your father's sin, reside? That it can be passed on. In your body. Why do you think we talk about the flesh lusting against the spirit? Actually, St. Paul talks about that. The good that I would do, well, I don't do it. And the thing that I know I don't want to do, well, that's the very thing I do. Why do you say that? Why do we talk about the old Adam and the new Adam? Or in the baptismal language, we talk about drowning the old Adam daily, putting to death. This substantive language. Why do we talk about flesh? Is it because we think your body is bad? No, because we've already talked about that. If you think your body is bad and your spirit is good, that's Gnosticism, which is one of the oldest and most ancient of church heresies. God created your body. Your body is not bad, it is good. But when we talk about the flesh, what we're really talking about are the, the passions or uh, animalistic urges, lusts of the flesh. Uh, the reformers used the language of concupiscence, Concupiscence is the inner desire and motivation and inclination towards sin. So, let's then look at 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. Okay, uh, this is often uh, read at the graveside, by the way, this, these texts from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. There's a lot to say here. Um, I'm going to start at verse 50, but this 35 through 49, this big chunk, is all about uh, the resurrection of the flesh and what kind of body you're going to have. And I've talked to you about that, a glorious body. Uh, you know, we treat the body with dignity in death because you're still a person. So it's not like somebody dies and you say, oh, well, he's gone. Well, just chuck that body in the dumpster. It's nothing but a body. You know, that's also why cremation is never the preferred, uh, the preferred behavior or practice within the church because we confess the reality of your body as still being a part of your person, and we confess the resurrection of the body. And Jesus is not saying Jesus can't raise a cremated body or a body that was buried at sea or something like that, but everything that we do both reflects and informs what we believe. So when you, when you actually treat a body with reverence and treat even a body as a person, it confesses something that is unique about you know, what our idea of personhood. So like, here's an example. Nowadays, there are tons of things that you can have done to your body or that you can do to a loved one's body. You can have a green burial where they just put your body in the dirt and then plant a tree on top of you so that the tree absorbs your nutrients and you become a tree which to me is a weird druidic kind of quest for immortality. Well, if I can't live in this body, I'll live in this tree. Uh, the other thing that you can do is you can, have, you can have grandma cremated 
and then have her ashes compressed into a diamond. Yeah. And then they'll, then they'll ship you the diamond and you can wear your diamond. Oh, I've got grandma here. They burned her body and then crushed her bones and then swept it into a pile and then pressed it so hard that it became a jewel. And now I wear her around my neck. That seems silly when I say it like that, doesn't it? You know, it's, well, she'll always have her with you. I don't want my grandma always with me as a diamond around my neck. I think it's kind of creepy. If I wanted a piece of, oh, never, never mind, I'm not going to say. <laughs> that was about to get really kind of dark for Bible class. I, we're not going to go there. Hey, so the body matters. We confess the resurrection of the body. You treat the body. You know, I've said this before, every single pastor ought to be a prima donna at funerals. The funeral home directors don't run the funeral, the pastor runs the funeral. But ought to be a prima donna at, uh, in the church, obviously, but also at the graveside. And uh, you bet your bottom dollar I'm a prima donna. The, the casket needs to face a certain way. Why? Why does it matter? <sighs> because everything matters. Because we're making a confession. So when the casket comes in, it always comes in feet first. Why? Because if Christ were to come right then, then the body would stand up and face the same direction that everybody else is facing as a part of that congregation looking at Jesus. That's why. The, the body needs to be buried a specific way, facing east. Why? Because Christ comes in the east. So when Christ raises the dead and they come on up, they're going to look right at Jesus. In fact, it used to be a punishment for you to be buried facing west. And that would be a way that pagans would curse Christians. They would defile the graves by digging up a Christian and then turning them around and reburying them. And that would be a curse upon somebody so that when they were raised in the resurrection, they would be facing west and wouldn't be looking at Jesus. See, it's such a big deal, the pagans even took it. Now, they don't anymore. Now they just make diamonds out of you. But <laughs> so, so the body matters, and that's what Paul is talking about, the risen, the risen body. And he says, this is really important, what is sown corruptible is raised incorruptible. What is sown in dishonor is raised in honor and glory. And then he says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Huh? But Paul, friend, I thought you just spent 20 verses telling me that the body is going to be inheriting all of this stuff. What are you talking about? Is the Bible contradicting itself? What's he talking about? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Um, and then, you know, then he goes on, the, the corruptible must put on incorruption. But the important thing is, is in the twinkling of an eye. So we need to unpack this. What does he mean when he says that the, that the body cannot inherit? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruptibility. What, what does that mean? 
Yes. Okay, that's why I was pushing that so hard. That this original sin lies in your body, in your flesh. So is your body good? In that sense, it's not. I'm not asking about that sense. I'm just asking generally, is your body good? Yes. Yes, yes. but what, what are some of the problems with your body? There's sin in it. Mm-hmm. What did you say again? There's sin in it. There is sin in your body. But doesn't Jesus die for the sin in your body? So, yes, he does. But see, if Jesus died for the sin in your body, why do you still sin? Why do we still sin? Yeah, why do you still sin? Yeah, we're sinful by nature. Okay, good. Because you're sinful by nature. But you are reborn in the spirit. In baptism, you are adopted through baptism into the kingdom of God. Christ becomes your brother. You become sons of God through the sonship of Jesus. His father becomes your father, and you say, our father. But does this flesh with its hip troubles and knee troubles and eye troubles and heart troubles and any other kind of troubles, countless troubles, is that the body that's going to inherit eternity? Yes and no. I didn't mean for that to be a trick question. Um, I say yes because... And this is why we take such good care of bodies. Another reason why, by the way, because this body is the body that will be raised. And I've said this before, but when this body is raised, I, you know, I don't need any medication for my strange and lazy stomach. I don't need any prescription for my eyes because they will be able to see. My hearing damage from being a brass player and sitting next to trumpets uh, and playing loud, bombastic pieces of music will not be present. Yes, sir. Verse 56. Yes, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the victory? The victory is the resurrection. And the, erase, the erasing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of, that's presumed in the resurrection. Uh, but the resurrection of the body then is something that only takes place because of the atonement of Christ, because of the victory of Christ over sin and death and the grave. You can't have people raised from the dead if there's no victory over sin, because then the law still says, no, there's sin, sin has to be condemned. The problem is your flesh is still a corruptible flesh. So even then when it is raised, it must be made incorruptible. So it is this body, yes, that will be raised, but no, because the specifics of this body are going to become new. Like I said, those of you with health ailments, which are all of you, in one way or another, you will have this body. 
you will look like you, but you will not have any of the ailments or any of the issues that sin causes within your flesh. Why? Because you will be changed. How? By the fire that will burn the bad out of you and make you nothing. You know, all that will be left is what Christ has built on you. Now, uh, the, the way to picture this is, are you going to recognize people in heaven, in paradise? Will you recognize them? Yes, absolutely you will. Here's the follow-up question. Will you recognize people that you never even knew? Like, say, uh, St. Columba of I. Well, yeah, see, I'm trying to choose somebody that you probably don't know about so that it sounds obscure. Because if I say, are you going to recognize Moses? Everyone's going, oh, sure, I'll recognize Moses. He's Moses. But if I say, are you... Yeah, that's right. Charlton Heston's going to be up there. Uh, Are you going to recognize St. Columba of Iona? I think two people in this room might recognize Columba of Iona, which is myself and my wife. But we're the nerds. Are, is everyone going to recognize St. Columba of Iona? Yes, you will. You will recognize the saints of God, even the ones that you do not know. That is part of the glory of what the resurrection means and what this purgation or this purifying does to you. You are only seen and recognized for the good that has been worked in you and that Christ has allowed you to give and to receive. So when you see people, you recognize them not even so much by how they look, but simply by who they are. You just know people for who they are, and you see them and you oh my goodness, St. Columba, is that you? Well, it sure is. Hey, look at you. You look great. Hey, I remember when you did that and that, and you ministered to the saints in Ireland and Scotland. Boy, what a class act. You're St. Patrick's here? Hey, you got rid of the snakes. Hey, all right. And people are going to find you and say, hey, look at you. Hey, you fed that poor person that one day. Good for you. And it's going to be the stuff that you don't even remember Oh, did I do? Oh, well, look, look at that. You know, and it's going to be Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, but on the personal level. You know, Matthew 25 is Jesus going and he says, hey, you sheep, you get to be sheep because you fed me and you clothed me. And they said, ah, uh, when, when did we do that? Which, by the way, is the great compliment to you. If Jesus comes and tells you, thank you for doing this to me, and you say to him, oh, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. It not, no, not with false humility. Oh, Jesus. Oh, please. I don't know what you're talking about. It was nothing. Thanks. You know, but with true humility. Oh, I, I sincerely have no idea what you're talking about, Lord. And he says, I know. And that's what makes it so good. But Matthew 25 also is reflected in a personal way, as St. Paul talks about here in the resurrection and the the purgated, purified flesh with all the stuff, bad stuff burned out and all that's left being Jesus and his good and his good in you. Because you're going to look at each other and say, hey, I know you. You're the one who took care of so-and-so and, and, and you visited so-and-so in prison. Yeah, and you're the one who did blah, 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 blah. And you're just going to know. That's what it's going to be. 
So it's going to be the greatest family reunion of all time because you actually love everybody and want to spend time with everybody and have no bad memories about anybody. Wow. That's great. Brenda. It just made me think about how we always beat ourselves up all the time. I know we, all, we think, whoa, I did that, I've done with this, I've done with that. But if you ever run into somebody who you knew years ago, like I've had this with high school friends, and I think, oh, I was such a jerk in high school. And then I've had people come to me and say, I remember when you did this, and that was so nice. And it's mm -hmm. like, whoa. So, you know, um, we need, I just, I'm thinking, we need to embrace that forgiveness and that love of Christ for ourselves and know that we do make a difference in people's lives with these little things that we don't even remember. Yes, indeed. Just, the, the struggle is not letting it go to your head. Because, no, I'm, being, I'm getting, being completely serious. That's the Christian struggle, is knowing that I am to live this way, but then combating the tendency, which we all have, some more than others, to let that go to my head and talk about what a great Christian I am because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, instead of being... See, because that's, we've got like 30 seconds. That's like what the goats are. Because the goats, they do stuff, they do good works, but Jesus says, you didn't do it to me. And they say, well, if we had known it was you, we would have done it, obviously, because we believe in you. And he said, well, that's not the point. That's not what this is about. You didn't do it. You didn't actually live on the foundation that was given to you. Now all this stuff's going to be burned off of you, and the wrath of God is coming against your sin, and that's... That's bad for you. That's asbestos fire. Okay, uh, choir, let's head to the sanctuary. Everybody else, we'll see you at the altar.